it's not as if it, there's some kind of test you can use to see whether this claim has been scientifically established or at least has the weight of scientific evidence on its side. Of course, this came out a lot with the whole uh, pandemic. No one really knew what to think about masking, at least for in some initial period. And that even when that kind of uh, meta study came out quite recently from the place in the UK that everyone says is the gold standard for, <laughs> for deciding these issues, it turns out even they are mostly analyzing some of these old studies that, that no one could extract any useful information out of. To what extent does that bear on masking during COVID? It's, there are many different opinions. Are these studies giving us information or misinformation? That might not even be the right question to ask. That was philosopher Michael Strevens and me, Natasha Mott. And on this episode of Neo Academia, Michael and I discussed society's perception of science and his book, The Knowledge Machine. As a professor of philosophy at NYU, Michael keeps pretty busy working on complex systems, probabilities, causation, philosophy of science, and science as a sociological system. This podcast is possible with thanks to the Theory Gang Substack subscribers, Gang Gang, and this season's sponsor, Big Nerve. I've been working with Big Nerve for a while now to develop a community of innovative, creative thinkers, and their goal is simple. They want to recognize and fund creative thinkers. They're trying to create an entire new profession of innovation where catalysts like me could ask interesting and engaging questions and innovators like you can answer them. There are many different ways to play. You can ask questions, answer them, rate answers, mentor answers. All of this earns you points. At the end of the month, these idea tournaments pay out to the top 30 participants and everybody gains some more experience points and gets known for their expertise. This game is meant to elevate creative thinkers and their ideas. To join my team, you'll have to click on the Big Nerve question in the Theory Gang newsletter, where each episode I'll design a special question relevant to the guest and discussion. All right, here's the episode. Now don't forget to listen all the way to the end for the question. You know, the first time I saw you, it was in the National Academy's Committee on Misinformation. And I, I was streaming it on TikTok at the time. And I'm listening to you talk and you're smiling the whole time. And I started laughing hysterically because I'm looking at this committee. They're all so stern and they're all, they all seem very intent on gleaning some bit of useful information from what you're saying. And they're asking you, what is misinformation? And you're kind of like, <laughs> I don't know. And I just, I was like. I think I said on TikTok, I was like, who invited Michael Strevens to this party? They, they, were, they did the wrong thing. <laughs> it seemed like they wanted you to say, this is misinformation and this is how we're going to get rid of it. Do you have this experience? I, we had a little bit back and forth about what I was going to do. So I don't think it was a, a total surprise. I said I would put it, the whole question into the historical context and talk about some of the challenges to distinguishing information from misinformation which is then what I went on to do. I hope, I mean, I hope that was useful <laughs> in a way. It's no, one way to look at it is it's a, it's some reasons not to frame an inquiry into what is, I think, an important question around some kind of definition. Don't expect a definition that's going to be something you can, you can refer back to and use as your foundation for thinking about this stuff. It's not, it's not that easy. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know. I think that Cher, maybe that was who you're communicating with. He seemed to vibe with it. He was like, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And everybody else's face was just kind of like, 
this is not good. (laughs) (laughs) And I had just come off the heels of being at the Santa Fe Institute the first time for their uh, symposium on collective intelligence. And I heard the word misinformation kicked around a lot Mm -hmm. and had quite a lively debate with several people about what it is we should do about it. Because that was the main thing is what should we do about it? And I'm kind of of the camp of like, we have to let it ride a little bit. Mm -hmm. Are you, would you say you're in that camp? Yeah. I mean, there are, of course, there's the the really crazy stuff. Um, But that so much of what really matters to people is, is so up in the air that it's hard, it's hard to say what's the information and what's the misinformation or rather the, the, ultimately we find out in the end, perhaps what it was, but there's no kind of criterion. There's no, it's not as if it, there's, there's some kind of test you can use to see whether this, this claim has been scientifically established, or at least has the weight of scientific evidence on its side versus something that's an interesting suggestion that. Maybe I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that there's no distinctions that can be drawn, but there's a lot of argument about where the weight of evidence lies or whether we have enough evidence to even decide one way or another. This, this, of course, this came out a lot with the whole pandemic. You know, for a while, I think no one really knew what to think about masking, at least for in some initial period. And that really turned out, I, th- I think even, even when that kind of uh, meta study came out quite recently, from the place in the UK that everyone says is the gold standard for, for deciding these issues. It turns out even they are mostly analyzing some of these old studies that, that couldn't really, that no one could extract any useful information out of that had studies involving small numbers of people in different situations with different diseases and, and so on and so forth. To what extent does that bear on masking during COVID? It's, there are many different opinions. So. Are these studies giving us information or misinformation? That might not even be the right question to ask. Well, I think they only want to ask the question, they meaning like scientific authorities, so that they can use the information for policy, right? So this is where I think the problem lies in trying to use science politically at its forefront. Like, I mean, if we're trying to use Mm. something established like gravity, Mm. I mean, there's a big difference from that to cutting edge science. Like if we need to make policy based on, you know, some like muons right now, maybe we shouldn't <laughs> because we're not sure what's going on. Yeah. Well, the thing, I mean, the thing about COVID is, it is, of course, it is urgent to make some kind of policy. Not doing anything is itself a policy. Right. And in a situation like that, to start talking as though there's just somewhere out there is the science and we should follow the science. Is, is framing the whole problem in the wrong kind of way. I mean, that's not, of course, I, I'm a science fan. I'm a science believer. I think we should do the science, but it's not like there's just one flag being waved around and all you need to do is spot the science flag and head in that general direction. It's just much more complicated than that. And if citizens are going to make up their mind in an intelligent way about what to do in the face of a lot of uncertainty, I think they should have a a better understanding of what we can and can't get out of science that's still very much in the making. So yes, with something like the question of whether or not the earth is flat, we have a consensus. But with so many other questions, what you have is a situation where it's not just that we have uncertainty, we have disagreement about 
which are the more um, important or revealing sources of evidence? Should we think more about the controlled experiments that were done with masking? Is that the more important thing? Or is it more important to think about the actual me mechanism underlying COVID transmission and think about sort of exactly what masks keep in and keep out and so on? And that a lot of that stuff was flying back and forth. And I think there was no way early on, and it's still difficult to, to say exactly, exactly what we should believe. I mean, you know, I'm pretty middle of the road on these things. I'm not pushing for any kind of extreme position, but I do think there is a lot of uncertainty. It's very hard to just brand something in particular as misinformation when it's a claim that's being made in the middle of this kind of ferment. Exactly. I mean, where I detached from science during the pandemic was in a, the moment I realized the gaping hole in our understanding is philosophical, not scientific. So let's say, you know, we understand the R naught of, of any particular pathogen. We understand, you know, how lethal it is. We understand all of these things. The question that remains is still what should be done about it? And that's a philosophical moral question to say, if it's going to kill 10% of the population, 5%, 3.5, you know, how the choices you make in your personal life, how does that relate to that? This is the philosophical question. And I started to realize that people who I consider, I mean, they're scientists, not that I considered them, they're working scientists. They were using these heuristics and completely neglecting the philosophical aspect. So I did like a little thought experiment on Facebook, right? I like left Facebook right after this because I was so pissed. But I said, imagine you have 100 people in a room and you can get 50 out. They're all ages, you know, mixed, total mixed population. Who would you get out first? And a couple of my scientist friends said, well, the children. And I thought, eh, like if you're using scientific reasoning, that is not the answer. We understand that the morbidity is very low in children. You failed. You're not a scientist. This is bullshit. I was pissed. And I called them out on it. And they were like, and they, and they had nowhere to go. They were backed into a corner and they realized that they were not thinking scientifically and that maybe there's something that they're missing, but they doubled down on it. I think that's the moment when I broke from being a scientist and like started more into philosophy. <laughs> but do you think... Well, first of all, well, I, yeah, I half agree with you and say that there's not really such a thing even as, as thinking scientifically about this. So we shouldn't really expect scientists to come up with better answers than anyone else. I mean, of course, they should remember, they should remember the, 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 how, how much more dangerous COVID is in older people than younger people. So it would be a mistake to forget that. But after that, this, this kind of deliberation just lies completely outside the, the scope of, of scientific inquiry, I think. In fact, I think in a way there's, this, this is going to be a little bit extreme, but there's no such thing as scientific thinking, even about science. Right. The, there's what scientists are doing is no different from what anyone else would be doing. The, what's really characteristic of science is a kind of evidence gathering procedure that is designed not to require any kind of interpretation of the evidence kind of thing I was just talking about. So not to require any kind of thinking as such. I mean, you have to think about what to do as a, in order to, a scientist has to think to themselves what the best thing to do is, but that, 
that thinking that they're doing privately about the kind of research they're going to do is no different from ordinary people's thinking, I think. There's not a scientific way to do that kind of thinking. Insofar as, you know, you can think about a quest, the kind of question you posed more scientifically or less scientifically, it's just that can't mean a whole lot more than, than bringing in whatever scientific knowledge you have. But then as soon as the deliberation begins, I think scientists are just people too. That is such a controversial thing to say, but I agree with you so firmly. And it should not be a controversial thing to say. But I think the problem is most people don't understand science. I mean, not even the scientists doing science. People are, you know, I do these TikTok lives and I put this kind of question above my head, what is science? And people come in and they have these answers. Like it's, you know, it's X, it's Y, it's Z, it's all these things. What's a theory? I know what a theory. And I'm like, cool, but no. (laughs) (laughs) we we don't know and you're absolutely right like it's about the experiments so i think this is a great time to talk about what's going on on twitter right now and the whole integrated information theory is it representative of consciousness is there could there even be a science of consciousness Mm -hmm. and i think i know your perspective maybe Mm -hmm. i could guess at it but i'd love to hear you tell it Sure. Well, there's a sense in which what I just said, although it may sound a little bit unhinged about there not really being a scientific thinking, you know, a kind of set of rules that's characteristic of the way scientists think about, well, really any kind of question. The flip side of that sounds incredibly straightforward and uncontroversial, which is that science is all about empirical testing. (laughs) So I do think that the mark of scientific inquiry is to formulate theories and test them. And so if something like integrated information theory is going to be amenable to scientific inquiry, and you know, if if it's not, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing, I should add. You know, I'm a philosopher. A lot of what I do is is not amenable to scientific inquiry, but I still think I'm doing a good thing. But if it's going to be science, then the bottom line is, and again I'll say this is a very conventional view, empirical testing. Can we can we test this theory? Are there ways to pile up evidence in favor of it or against it? And I know quite a bit of this argument has been around whether it really is testable or not. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is the question, you know, and then one of the big questions is, is computational modeling an adequate empirical test? Because a lot of what, and you know, you know, on Mm -hmm. complexity, a lot of what's happening there is mathematical fitting, perhaps overfitting of models. And, And that can never be truly representative of reality but is it close enough and what do we do with this asymptotic entity that we might have on our hands you know it's like almost science mm-hmm. it's it's like fire robert says like the sciences is it like the science light i mean wh- where does computation fit into this well i think a lot of real scientific inquiry involves a lot of computation and computational modeling but it's always with an eye to the the empirical testing so these models perform many intermediate functions, but the goal finally is to create some kind of set of theories or models or something like that, that make predictions about what you'll see in various experiments, at least in the experimental sciences or what you'll observe in the more observational sciences like astronomy, cosmology. And what really distinguishes a kind of ordinary standard sciencey modeling from the kind of, I think, actually really, really interesting, but I still think of as not 
not exactly science, modeling and speculation that goes on. Maybe it could be in theories of consciousness, or it just could be the kind of thing that the Santa Fe Institute was famous for, that is exploring the consequences of various mathematical principles. <laughs> what really distinguishes them is, is whether the ultimate point is to bring experimental data or observational data ultimately on, a, on some idea to test it, or whether it's something else. So the, the, there's a kind of a pursuit, which take, take something like artificial life. That was once a, a, a big thing at Santa Fe. And it's, I mean, everybody and enjoys messing around with the game of life or, or some system like that. There's a kind of open-ended, joyful, really kind of fascinating, no doubt, philosophical enterprise, which consists in just building those artificial life models and seeing what they do. And then maybe even kind of generalizing about what they do. But I think that a lot of that enterprise wasn't really concerned with ultimately formulating some claims about what would be observed um, in the real world or even in the computer world. It was a kind of a, a kind of creative intellectual pursuit that was just in the end, not about empirical testing. Uh, engineering, you might say even. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of, I suppose there's lots of applications that might have ultimately had, but I think People, people loved it partly just for the sheer intellectual joy of building these things, which I can totally empathize with. In the case of something like consciousness, the intellectual joy is, of course, of framing ideas about how consciousness might possibly emerge. And I think, again, there's, that's an that's a intellectually valuable enterprise, but I wouldn't count it as a scientific enterprise unless there's some game plan for ultimately wrenching predictions out of these models and, and putting them to the test. Right. Previous guests I've had just a couple episodes ago was Eric Hole, And mm -hmm. he said, you know, he thinks that neuroscience specifically, you know, not the neural correlates of consciousness side mm. of it, but the, mm. the consciousness itself is a free paradigmatic science. And I, part of me thinks perhaps but part of me thinks, how many pursuits did we think were going to be a science and then never turned out to be one? Why does everything have to eventually become a science? I mean, what is this? Why yeah. do we want this? No, I think, and a really important thing to emphasize here is that, and is that to say something isn't a science, or this isn't strictly speaking scientific inquiry, is not necessarily to criticize it. Now, I know, I know, and with with things like IIT and so on. Often the, the labeling it as not scientific is, is thought of as a criticism and it often is intended as a criticism. You know, if it's not scientific, then it's just idle speculation. It's, it's kind of a waste of, of effort and grant money insofar as there is grant money. But I don't think of it that way at all. You know, I think we can say this is right. This is, if this is science, it's it's pre-paradigmatic, or as you say, maybe it's just not going in that direction at all, but that doesn't make it a bad thing. It doesn't make it a useless thing. It doesn't even make it, it does, it could be something that will be very useful one day for a more empirical form of inquiry. Some of these ideas about complexity, for example, may one day be a part of a program of scientific inquiry. And right. so we shouldn't just, we shouldn't dismiss it because it's not science. It's important to, to kind of understand that, that the, 
one aspect of science as being such a kind of a narrow thing, I mean, I think a narrow thing that's incredibly successful because of its narrowness, is there's going to be a lot of stuff that falls outside those limits that is still valuable. Even the metaphor of the knowledge machine, there's a lot of, I don't even know if I'd call it byproducts, but the way I imagine the knowledge machine or the metaphor of it, like, you know, a lot of stuff goes in. And it refines mm. the stuff through the process of science. And then something mm. very specific comes out and the byproducts, mm. you know, they're still there. But he, for example, just been reading about like fish and the, and the, I, and the, like, you know, the, the eye, the self, there's no, that's still part of the consciousness that has yet to become a science and it may never become a science, but it was nevertheless a really interesting and useful piece that think about how much utility we've gotten coming from like the bicameral mind to now cognitive behavioral therapy, where we can kind of control a lot of our own destinies. You know, and that was an intermediate step along the way. Although, I mean, I feel like we, we, I say we, and I, I mean my former self as well, looking down on things like, you know, being trained as a scientist saying, that's not a science. That's, you know, what is this perspective? Why do we have this? Is it moral? Are you asking, why do we have this? a perspective that's sort of um, focused on science as the single course of, I don't know, epistemic value. Yes. The one true way of knowing. I mean, science has been so successful that it's almost inevitable that it will start to get a little bit dictatorial or authoritarian in its pretensions, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying that about individual scientists, but just about the place in the intellectual culture of the, of the modern world. It's, it's so much has been achieved through science and so many lives have been saved. Not always science at the most, at its most kind of conceptual level. A lot of it is kind of very simple empirical work on what works and doesn't work medically speaking, for example, but it's been so successful. It can be hard to remember sometimes that it's worth doing anything else. That's a good answer. (laughs) I mean, and I also wonder if you know, we haven't built our entire society around science and technology in a way that is kind of cut our nose off to spite our face. Like we, we could disappear into it. Do you think there's a way to kind of, I don't want to say slow the progress of it, but everyone talks about how impeding the progress of science might be a bad thing. Do you think maybe that there might be a case for impeding the progress of science? Well, I think part of the, part of the narrowness of science actually means that 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 the the day-to-day reality of science is that it's people may believe that it's this great intellectually imperialist project that's threatening to just swamp all the rest of culture but i think by its very nature it's totally incapable of actually doing that there's a kind of a rhetoric of doing things scientifically you know thinking through problems scientifically and so on but there's no actual reality Behind that rhetoric, science will only ever be this, this again, I'll, I'll say incredibly successful, but still quite constrained way of going about, about trying to answer certain kinds of questions. There'll, there'll never be something that is, is, can literally and properly be called a, a scientific politics or a scientific morality. People may make that claim for their politics and their morality as a, as a ploy, you know, to beat down their opponents, but it's not, such a thing is not. It just couldn't possibly exist. Science just isn't the kind of thing that even could could direct political thinking or moral thinking or many other kinds of thinking. 
even the kind of integrative thinking that just tries to make sense of the scientific worldview's connection to everything else, or I should say that the picture we get of the world from science, you know, from our physics and biology and so on, the, the, the way that I suppose philosophers in particular, but philosophers in the broader sense, try to connect that to all of the other ways that we have of thinking about the world. That's a very important pursuit. And there's not, you can take science into account, take scientific knowledge into account, give it its due weight, but there's not a scientific way to build that bigger picture. So science just doesn't have the capacity to be this, this all-purpose, totally domineering system. I agree. <laughs> I'm not, I, I agree with you, but my fear is not that it will be. My fear is that it will be utilized as such. Like the, the mm. novel I referenced last time, We by Yvonne Zemnyatin. Have you read this? Like the, it's a precursor to Orwell, really. Orwell was inspired no, by it. No, I, I haven't, but I know, I know what you're talking about. It's, you know, technocratic dystopia, and it's based on, you know, trying to build a completely scientifically rational mm -hmm. world. And mm -hmm. I worry that we will try to get there. And I think the reason why I think we could get there is because of the deception that we relay to the public. I think there's a, there's a pretense that science is certain, and we try to relay that to the public. And the public sees right through it, unfortunately. And I mean, I worry that if too many people, you know, are ignorant of it. And it's funny because the people that are the most ignorant are kind of people who are in the like, you know, I fucking love science group. You know, these people who are like, they don't realize they're pretty much practicing scientism. It's very odd to me that the people who probably know the least about it are the most skeptical and properly so. But then the people close to it are almost sycophantic about it. Do you worry about this at all? Well, I do worry. I guess I guess I worry. I do worry more about that. The way that. So the, 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 the picture of science we're talking about is the picture I was repudiating when we earlier on when we were talking that there's a scientific way of thinking and a scientific form of deliberation. And that, if that were true, then in some sense, there would be something you could take to apply to all of these other kinds of problems. And this, you know, the, the, the image of the scientific way of doing things is it's very kind of logical and objective. It prescribes certain moves and so on, which on the one hand is very helpful because it means you get a lot of agreement. It means that you get a lot of help in, in kind of making your decisions. But on the other hand, that's very it looks very dangerous because it excludes so much. So much is just kind of off the table that in, in this image of what scientific thinking is like. I think that, that that picture of science can be dangerous both to the people you are, you're worrying about right now, the people who kind of advocate the scientific worldview and who I think tend to mistake their own thinking for the paradigm of scientific thinking. You know, well, they look around, they they say, well, I'm, I, I like science, or maybe I'm a scientist, so my way of thinking about politics must be that scientific way of thinking about politics that I believe in. And you can kind of start to get a sense of where that may lead. But equally, this, this same picture, I think, is, very, is potentially very dangerous for people who don't know very much about science because they expect science to have a certain character. They expect, it, they expect science to be the kind of machine that can take whatever we know about going back to COVID, take whatever we know about the coronavirus and so on, and 
come out with a set of recommendations, you know, not with certainty or anything like that, that it might come out just by saying, okay, here's what we know so far. Probably this is good. Probably this isn't good. And we're waiting for more information to say more. But the thing is, you do get a kind of a, here's what science knows at this particular time. Maybe not that much yet. Maybe we wish it knew more, but we have a kind of a picture. We've thought scientifically about the evidence and here's, here's the right thing to do now. That's what people are expecting from science. And what they get instead is all of these scientists yelling at one another or certainly disagreeing with one another, giving very different stories about which, which kind of data is worth taking seriously and which isn't. And it looks like this whole thing about science is just propaganda. It's the story that's being used to kind of foist a certain view on, you know, poor, poor old you. But there's no real objectivity there. It's just open season and whoever has the most institutional power can use, use the, the rhetorical power of the word scientific to do whatever is most convenient for them. And that view then leads to a kind of science skepticism and a refusal to take seriously what we can kind of glean from the data at any given point that we, we see springing up all over the place with respect to a whole bunch of different questions. So the pandemic, of course, climate change, of course, and, and a whole lot of other things as well. So that people expect from science much more than is really there. When they don't get it, they think the whole operation is bankrupt. Actually, it's not bankrupt. It's this, that really is this, this wonderful, precious way we have of finding things out. But because it looks so different from the way people expect it to look, they don't, they don't recognize it when it is working the way it's supposed to be working. They see those disagreements about how to interpret the data as a pathology rather than as science just running its usual course. The science skeptics, I'm very interested in them in particular. Like for some reason, people tend to come to me with their flat earth theories and their anti-vax and their whatever, because I don't, because I'm a scientist and I don't, or I was a scientist, there's a question as to whether that identity exists, <laughs> um, but I don't kind of make them feel stupid. And in the book, we were talking about how the knowledge mach machine produces all these different voices and all this dispute, and we need translators towards the end of the book. You mentioned like the IPCC would be the translator. And I see issue with this because it doesn't represent the common person in any way. And so you're going to be speaking the language of those who are scientifically inclined and interested, but you're still not speaking the language of those who are skeptical. And I think what happens with those who are skeptical is they're told things like, this is 100% safe, or this is absolutely, you know, anthropocentric. And then they find little things and they, they cling to those little things and they go, you're lying. And so how do we deal with the translating body, which I don't know if I agree that that should be the translating body. That is merely an arbitrating body. It arbitrates the disputes, but then we still need a translating body. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I mean, translator is, is not the right way to characterize what's going on because it's not just a matter of taking a bunch of esoteric knowledge and, and, and and putting it into a form that's easier to understand. Right. It's the word arbitrate is exactly right. What you're doing is you're taking a bunch of data that uh, has a lot of inconsistencies and problems and also a huge amount of information 
and trying to get out of it, extract from it some sort of reasonable summary, mm -hmm. which is not, it's not in any way dictated by the body of evidence itself. But to say something like, you know, the, the closest you can get is the kind of formulations they use in law courts. You know, what a reasonable person would think if they read all these papers, except, of course, that that reasonable person would have to be an expert in about 500 different things, so they don't really exist. Right. But find a kind of a middle ground, which is, is a compromise. It's the kind of thing that an arbitrator would, would find, you know, not the truth, but just something that's somewhere in the middle that doesn't... <laughs> Right. It's not extreme. And then that's kind of the best, the best we can do when we're in the middle of science and we, there's still a lot of controversy about, I mean, there's a lot of consensus too, but there's also a lot of controversy about very important questions and which data to take more seriously, which to give more weight to and so on. There's no, there's no real answer to the question who is, who is going to do the right job here. You have to do a job that is at the same time, this is partly political, um, partly sociological. You're, I think you are trying to do justice to the way that everyone thinks. But inevitably, the people who are doing this work are experts who come from the fields in question, who are not representative of the world at large. And you really have to hope that the process of coming together to make this decision in a context that they themselves realize is not, not in strictly speaking, a scientific context, you have to hope that the weight of that responsibility pushes them to seek out the kinds of institutional biases, the sort of the collective agreement on things that might not have be as well established as 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 on, on closer examination. And they they there's a, there's a little bit of intellectual honesty, and still, what you get out is going to be in in a sense a kind of an opinion, but it's going to be a middle ground, middle of the road opinion, which hopefully doesn't neglect some very important possibilities. So it's, it's a very, very difficult job to do. Even with the best will in the world, it's not going to be done brilliantly because that's, I think, close to logically impossible. The best you can hope for is, is as with politicians themselves formulating public policy or, or, or that people in, in government more generally formulating policy that they try to be as open-minded and as open to the concerns of all the legitimate human concerns as possible. Yeah. The way I'm thinking about it is most people can't relate to this training mechanism that they put scientists through, like we talked about yeah. previously, about like, you know, when I was trained as a scientist, it was kind of like, Okay, you need to not do this, not do that. You need to focus on this, you know, only do these studies and don't think too far outside of anything. You know, barely be human was the was the request. Yeah, right. And then these people, I think they're like you said, they're they're trained as almost a militia, like an informational militia. Mm -hmm. And then people are expected to understand the direction of the militia, like you know, why is our scientific military marching on whatever it's marching on? And people don't feel represented. Whereas like the actual militia, if you think about who feels represented in that population, interestingly, it may be quite the opposite, that the people that are most represented in the actual military are people who are farther removed from science. So the scientists and, you know, more intellectuals may understand that movement less. But how do we... I guess I'm asking, how do we balance it? How do we communicate with people who are so far removed from science that they 
don't have a clue what's going on and don't trust the institution, do we, Eric Howell just said in his latest blog, something like hiding the dirty laundry or something, like don't air our dirty laundry, I felt like was a very telling phrase. Or do we just tell it like it is? We don't really know. We're doing the best we can. I'm very pro dirty laundry. You know, that's kind of what I was saying earlier. I think we should, I think in the end, it will really help for ordinary people to have an accurate view of science. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of disagreement. You know, of course, you can see the immediate dangers of this because it can look like it's playing into the hands of skeptics, but, or people who are using skepticism to, for other reasons. But I think in the end, that's what, what we should do. It's, there's always a lot of disagreement about this stuff. Science typically gets there in the end, but sometimes that's too late because we need to do something right now. So what we need to do is take this disagreement in the same way we take disagreement in politics and put it together, not into the sort of the one logically correct thing to think, but just some sort of middle ground proposal that is maybe what no one really believes, but that kind of captures as much of the information as we can, given that we don't really know which is the good information and which is the bad information. Yeah. I mean, we exaggerate a little bit, of course, there's many signs that there's many signs that we can use to think, well, that's probably better information. That's probably worse, but there's nothing like a, enough consensus on that, even among the experts to say, oh, we, there's just a consensus on what the later, on, on what we should say about climate change right now. There isn't what, what there is, is a, the result of a negotiation by many different people and then a process that tries, as I say, to find a kind of middle ground that doesn't necessarily represent anyone's particular view, but which is a reasonable set of guesses, not too influenced by any one set of biases. And, and people have to know that's, that's all that we're really getting from the IPC. It's the best we can get, but it's, some, it's a lot better than the alternative. Right. Which is nothing, you know, which is, uh, you yeah, know, exactly. a complete mysticism. Yeah. Because I think anytime we marry politics with science too much, it, it runs the risk of losing its value entirely. It's a very fine, narrow path to travel. And thinking of the climate situation right now, where you've got what the politically the right in the United States calls like climate alarmism. And then the left is like, it's extinction. I mean, I think that's the word they're using, which like, it's got to be somewhere in the middle. And here's the thing too, is couldn't we speak to real situations? Like for example, you know, rising sea levels. If this were to happen, regardless of whether it's human caused or nature, it just happens in nature. What are we going to do about it? Isn't there a way to talk about this without it being so heavily politicized because these are real things that are happening. I mean, in Florida, in all these coastal areas, it's not a surprise that Miami floods every year. Like we know. So why do we have to frame everything with this political impetus? What makes it hard though, especially for someone like me who thinks, yeah, let's tell it like it is. This is the way science really works. Is that scientists' political views do creep into the way they interpret the data. You know, they're dictate the way they interpret the data, but it does creep in. It does have an effect. And I, I guess if you're going to tell it like it is, you have to admit that and <laughs> say, here's, and here's kind of what we're doing about it. Right. And we're doing the best we can. Well, we're probably not doing the best we can, of course, <laughs> but the realistic alternatives that even worse. <laughs> then we're not doing the best we can because we know, but not everybody agrees with you that we should be telling it like it is. 
Well, so okay. The point well, to tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But where you know, at least this is my my way of thinking about it. Something like the the IPCC view is going to be wrong in lots of ways. You know, not and they incorporate uncertainty in their views, and they say this is seventy five percent probable, but some of that's just going to turn out to be quite wrong, and maybe even wrong because of certain systematic biases, which maybe come as much from institutional things that only the scientists themselves would really even appreciate. You know, the way that if you if you work in someone's graduate program or work in someone's lab, you tend to be much more familiar with and you tend to trust the methods that are used there and you're a little bit less trusting of methods that are used elsewhere. That's does it it's kind of political, even though it's got nothing to do with left and right. But all of that stuff is going on all the time. Anyway, that and it because the fact because it is going on, if you're going to give people an accurate picture of science, you somehow have to reassure them that it's not just a total disaster. That the alternatives are all actually much worse. Even as you admit that the story you're getting from, say, the IPCC, and you know, I don't mean to demean them in any way at all, but the story you're getting is is kind of a mix of of the subjective and the objective, despite all the the best efforts of the people who who have contributed to those reports. You got to admit that that's the way it is. And somehow get people to see that just as with a political compromise, though it's can no doubt in retrospect, we'll be able to criticize it in many different ways. Some of which we can't even conceive of right now. There'll be mistakes that nobody's even thought that we might be making, that it turns out we've been making in spite of all of that, doing it this way is better than doing it any other way. Right. Look at your face while you're, while you're saying this, I feel like. I can see the anguish because, mm -hmm. I mean, I think your perspective is still a minority perspective amongst scientists and me. I mean, I don't know. What do you even think like philosophers of science, modern philosophers of science? Do you think this is you're still a minority perspective? I think a lot of philosophers of science would agree with some of the basic premises here that okay. there's not sort of the this. There's no way a committee like the IPCC can really claim to have just simply come up with the, with a, the objective content right. of Well, but this is the issue, right? Is, you know, like you said in the book, Dawkins and I forget who else, uh, oh, Krauss basically said what you do is a waste of your life. Like they were like philosophers of science, you should just go kick rocks because you're not important and what you say is not important and it's the scientists that are important. Why is it this versus situation? I mean, do you feel like, have you been personally attacked ever or like, what is the. No, no, not really. You know, I, even as I say in the book, I think even some of those, of course, some of those people have had acrimonious debates with individual philosophers, but yeah. over, over much more personal things like uh, mm -hmm. Krauss had a pretty angry exchange with actually my old teacher, David Albert over David's review of his quite negative review of his book. And, you know, that's the sort of thing people, of course, do argue acrimoniously about. Right. <laughs> they take it personally, they take it personally and understandably so. But I don't, I don't actually take some of those, those bigger claims about the uselessness of philosophy actually as, as particularly hostile to philosophy, even though on the surface, that's exactly what they are. I see them more as kind of rallying cries to the scientists saying, look, when you're doing science, don't, don't worry about this philosophy stuff. It's not important to what you're doing. And actually, I think that's good advice to scientists, if not well, good advice to human beings kind of trying to think about the world as a whole, but it is the right thing to be thinking as you're in the lab trying to get 
produce a, a useful bucket full of data. Yes. And I mean, I, I didn't know I would be more inclined to philosophy. I had no clue. I actually mm. thought, you know, I didn't know I was, you know, I'm first generation in my family to go to college. And so they were like, you smart, be a doctor. And then I was like, oh, I could be a scientist because being a doctor mm. sounds like it sucks. So, but that whole, you know, put your nose to the grindstone, don't worry about all this other stuff. Really, I think I didn't read philosophy, not one iota, never took philosophy 101 until I left science and I looked around and I was like, this does not answer questions I have. And so it wasn't until much later that I had any philosophical inclinations. And so I think the way I see it is it's a real detriment to like modern polymathy. If we are to see any emergence of modern polymathy, it would have to be, I don't know if it would have to be, but we would need people to start looking into science and then be distracted and look elsewhere. That's like where all the brightest minds go now is science, computation, mathematics, like don't we want a fraction of those people looking around at the world? Totally, totally. And, you know, the science of almost anything can get very complicated. So it's hard to use it, use it in a productive, fruitful way to answer these bigger questions without being a bit of an expert in it, or have, certainly having spent some time becoming acquainted with it. And so naturally you go to scientists themselves to answer these questions. And some scientists, they, when they're in the lab, they're doing their science, they have their lab coats on, they think one way. And then when they turn around and address the world, they really can. All the, all the, science, the shackles fall away and they can think like a human being. They do think like a human being. Well, as I said earlier, I guess all scientists think like human beings, but they can, you know, they think like a, a philosopher who wants to sort of see how everything hangs together. <laughs> but it's... But the problem you raise is a real one because you, on the one hand, it seems like you need a bunch of experts to understand the stuff in the first place. But then the way the job description for the experts and the way the best science gets done is to ignore all these bigger questions. You know, this is what I think Dawkins and Krauss and Stephen Hawking and so on are all about. You know, don't think philosophically if you're going to be a good scientist. So, so it's a very small number of people who are able to kind of have that basically dual nature where they, where they can really thrive in the lab and enjoy being there, you know, rather than just feeling locked down yeah. uh, and also think in a fruitful way outside the lab. You know, the alternative, the, there are those people and then there are people like some philosophers who are, because they have the comfort of uh, a university position, you know, in effect, you're being paid to spend about half your time thinking. You kind of do have the time to go and get really acquainted with some of the sciences. And so, you know, coming from the others, instead of the scientist becoming a part-time philosopher, the philosopher becomes a part-time scientist. Yeah. That's the other way to, to, to find the polymaths that you want. But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tall order to be that kind of person. It's not straightforward to create the situation where it's even possible to live that life. It's definitely a weirdo, but I mean, I guess <laughs> the way I think about it is you could have a category of people that go very surface level on a lot of things, or right. you have ones that take a big scoop out of like a few different things. And, right. and that's kind of like where those things converge in the book. I loved your little story about if you knocked on 
the door of Newton's laboratory in Cambridge, you would find him in his alchemy robes. Mm-hmm. And you had to piss people off with this, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, I mean, who people have to be mad at you about this. Like you're painting Newton as like a part-time alchemist. I well, mean, are. he was a part-time well, alchemist. I know he was. I mean, but, we knew that. But you're telling, you're spilling the tea on this. Hmm. Like, you you know, I mean, how dare you? But I think this is at the root of the political divide. There's like this Machiavellian nature to what we do in the lab that like you wouldn't understand it. It's too complex. I just finished yesterday against method. Like I said, I was reading it on TikTok and I thought several times in reading the book, oh shit, I should not be doing this. People come into this live and they hear me saying like anything goes in science and they're like, I knew it. I understand the fear and trepidation that kind of causes the Machiavellian nature. But why do you think we're in this situation? What do you, and, and where do you think most of this is coming from? Wait, 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 wait what situation? The Like what I'm saying about the Machiavellian nature of, of science, like thinking about, oh, we can't tell people the truth about science. Oh, oh, I see. Hmm. Well, you know, I mean, the, I suppose the reasoning there is that science's authority rests in large part on this somewhat false picture of the way it actually works. Right. <laughs> like the scientist is like the professor, you know, you go to, or the teacher, you go to the classroom and they have knowledge and they impart their knowledge to you. Mm-hmm. People want that. People like that picture of science and that science can really use it to its advantage mm-hmm. to you know, justify its it's it's place in the universe so it's power is really what we're talking about is like wielding institutional power well yeah i mean it might not be in a in a sinister way it could just be we the science i really believe the science is valuable but it's also expensive we need to persuade people to pay for it so we want to paint it in a light make it science seem like some wise benevolent old man with a long beard who's (laughs) dispensing truth in a in the calmest <laughs> and meditative way, yeah. Put and, a coin you know, in and get it. The, what is it? What is the great Zoltar or whatever? The you know the game you can put a coin in and get a fortune or whatever. Oh right, yes, yeah, right. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Except that you put a billion dollars in, <laughs> a billion dollars and get a scientific truth. Truth. Yeah. yeah. So that's the kind of picture people have already. It's kind of tempting to run with it and then. To use it. Well, I think what happens, what do they say about like the truth? It's like at first they ridicule you for it and then they copy it or whatever. I mean, maybe it's the case that the vast majority of scientists in this kind of like reductive mentality have not recognized this truth about science yet because, as you say, they're busy Mm. face down in their Petri dishes or whatever. They don't need to think about these things. And what if they do? What if all of a sudden all of them wake up tomorrow and go... Oh gosh, <laughs> they they suddenly are granted like all the knowledge of Kuhn and and you know everyone to well, science. Actually, if that happens, they shouldn't have. I shouldn't have. I was a bit quick saying that they don't need to know this stuff. In a way, they already do know this stuff, but they haven't integrated their knowledge into their picture of science. I think. Mm-hmm. So I'm just talking about some some typical scientist who, on the one hand, has a picture of science that might not actually be so different from from the 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 wise old man or the. <laughs> vending machine sage 
that that kind of comes from that's kind of a personification of their textbooks, which are just mm-hmm. here's what we know. But in their everyday lives, they they run into all of these difficulties interpreting data all the time. They're constantly, at least politely, disagreeing with one another, and sometimes not so politely behind the scenes. They say, you know, you they, uh, you would know this very well. They say, oh, so and so's lab. I don't really trust anything coming out of that lab. Sure thing, yeah. Really, which would be really shocking, I think, if people at large could have heard heard that kind of banter. But it's constant. Or you know, but this lab actually, I really do trust and. These results I'm really suspicious of. My results, of course, I, I trust a lot. So, and, and part of being in science is negotiating all of these thoughts. You can't write any of this stuff down. And, and when you write a paper, you can't say that sort of thing. You can't say. Oh, that's, why, that's why they didn't like my paper. Yeah. That's why my notebook was so messed up. Like, you should see my lab <laughs> notebook. It was awful. I, was, I did it t- entirely wrong. Well, you can write it, I guess, in your, yeah, not your lab notebook, perhaps, but somewhere. <laughs> Just like, the, I think I wrote, oh, shit, I fucked this up. Or like, this is terrible. Or this is wrong. I don't trust this. I wasn't probably supposed to write it there. Definitely, I was criticized for having too flowery of language in my manuscripts. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when you wrote this I, in that book, you know, about like the what is broadcast up on the slide, what is published in the scientific record versus what is said mm-hmm. in hushed lab meetings or, you know, mm-hmm. people don't know this. They really don't. Right. So the scientists, of course, do know this. They know what happens in lab meetings. They know how important these kinds of deliberations are. You know, should I, is, so suppose they think the work coming out of that lab is not so great, then it's probably not worth your while to, to try to use it, to replicate it, to build research on top of it, right? So it really make these kind of del- opinions really make it, it are strate- strategically really important to your scientific career, even though you never breathe a word of it in, in your scientific publication. So of course scientists know this, mm-hmm. but I think for, for many of them, they haven't quite, right. you know, and it's not, it's not their job to do this, but they sort of haven't quite sort of squared that right. with, with the other side of science, which I think is, is very real too, which all scientists know, which is that in the end, we have a lot of well-established knowledge. Uh, a lot of knowledge of the way the world works that's based on very powerful, convincing sets of evidence. Mm-hmm. And somehow these two worlds coexist in the kind of that in the moment short term world is, in fact, the engine that kind of drives us down the road at, in this long term direction. And that almost paradox is, in a way, what I'm trying to explain and make sense of in my, in yeah. my book. The scientist is kind of schizo. They have to, <laughs> or yeah, yeah. or they are very good at compartmentalizing because this is exactly what I said about the thought experiment I did, where I said, who would you take out of the room if, if you know, 50 people were to get COVID? And they, they, I think when you push them to that limit and make them recognize that they're not entirely scientific, they close in on that gap. I think they start to sputter, you know, and they've reached that moment of aporia where they're backed into a corner, which I... I suspect people will start to wake up to this because I did. I started to think, how do I apply science to my life? I really did start to think this. And and when I realized I couldn't successfully, I started to short circuit. (laughs) But the, the other metaphor you wrote in the book was about science being like a coral reef. And immediately, well, I do this with anybody, no matter what they write, I go, no, um, (laughs) <laughs> so don't take it personal. 
But I thought, well, because my husband and I both enjoy invertebrates and we've cultured these for a while. I was like, you're talking about stony corals, right? The calcium carbonate excreting lime excreting corals, but not all corals are hard corals. And you said that the analogy or the metaphor was science is like a coral reef. And I started thinking, no, not, not all of them are like this. And what I, what I really got at was I think epistemology is like the coral reef. And science is maybe part of that bony exoskeleton, those hard corals in particular. But without any com critical component of this, the fish, you know, the microbes, the algae, the whole thing falls apart. So, I mean, it, at the end, you kind of said, oh, science isn't, it's not a coral reef. It's not this and that. So I assumed you, you would agree with it, but I kept waiting for it in the book. I'm, is he going to come back to this metaphor? Because I feel like he set us up to say, no, it's not like that. But would you, would you agree like that? I mean, you're not an epistemological realm to this. Let's get that clear. You're not a total subjectivist, right? Right, right. But what else leaves a hard exoskeleton like science, if any? I mean, history. And then what do you think about the study of history as a science? Like Peter Turchin, how do you feel about the cleodynamics situation? Well, <laughs> put you on the spot. It's interesting. I mean, I think I, I kind of love that sort of stuff just by intellectual affinity with yeah. regard that doesn't mean i think it's that has much chance of being true mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but i do you know i kind of i i find it fascinating yeah so i'm a little bit torn actually you know on the one hand that seems to it seems to not have it's you know the real the real world is so much more complicated than the stuff that makes it into the equations you think these equations cannot possibly be incorporating everything that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Although it's, on the other hand, you know, actually, this is one of my big research interests. So this goes beyond just liking the sound of it. It's amazing the degree to which you can succeed in writing down pretty simple equations for some kinds of systems that do leave out a lot of stuff that looks like it ought to be relevant. And it turns out not to be so relevant. So I think the project is not crazy but it is what's the right word for it bold yes okay i love bold yeah i guess in complexity eric was saying this is called mechanistic interpretability which is also in like ai where you're like you said how can certain variables be included and and probably like on a fat tail curve a huge number of them are are like not included but the equation still works and describes and fits reality. And this boils down to like that. I don't know why I called it plausible parsability and he called it mechanistic interpretability, but the idea of like, how much does any one system or variable contribute to the description of something? So this is something you're interested in. And, and how do you do research as a philosopher on this? Well, not empirically, they try to understand in, in this particular kind of work, what kind of structure in the real world makes it the case that so much stuff that looks like it ought to be relevant is not? So you could, you know, that in, in a way, one of the main elements of, of this kind of inquiry is mathematics. Mm -hmm. So trying to, trying to write down in a, admittedly in a sort of somewhat loose way, mathematical properties of the 
low-level dynamics, mm-hmm. let's say something like an ecosystem, which make it the case that things like, you know, the position of a, let's say it's just Canadian lynxes hunting snowshoe hares. You know, you can write down equations that, that have some success in describing how the population changes over time without having to take into account the positions of every single animal. Yeah, you know, what? what is it that determines population change? It's individual births and deaths. What determines, say, in particular, individual deaths? Well, for the hares, often just accidentally being too close to a lynx. <laughs> things like the individual positions are really important to the way the population changes. Yet, even intuitively, I think, we think, I can kind of ignore those. I can kind of think of it as just kind of like rolling the dice or drawing balls out of a big urn full of balls or something like that, because there's something about the way these systems work that, that, that creates a certain randomness to this. And, and in virtue of you know, what we call the law of large numbers, that randomness, that the, the, deta- the individual events don't matter so much, you're going to get very likely certain definite patterns out whatever happens. So it doesn't really matter exactly what happens when I, in each time I toss a coin, I'm going to get about 50% heads and about 50% tails. So if I only care about those statistics, if I only care about population numbers, I don't have to model all the individual causal goings on. But, you know, it's not obvious why that should, why, why lynxes chasing hares should be like tossing a coin. So it's kind of finding this structural which really means the mathematical similarities between coin tossing and and the Canadian boreal forest is the thing you tried I, I, I've tried to do in my work on this obviously completely different from what I'm up to in the knowledge machine right yeah no but I mean that's that's what's cool about it to be honest I'm like totally ignorant like I said I never really even met a philosopher in in college <laughs> I totally avoided the philosophy department because, you know, I was going to graduate in three years and get my PhD and do science. And, you know, I was mm-hmm. that kind of ding dong. And I loved being on campus. So, like, I really should have wandered a lot more mm. because what you're talking about, I'm, I'm just now discovering. Coming at it from a scientific perspective, it's very difficult because I'm looking at it going, is this wrong? Is this bad? Whereas, you know, you cu- you're coming from a computational perspective, is that right? Oh, well, originally, originally, yes, computer science and mathematics, which okay. I use in some of my philosophy, like the work I was just describing about complex systems. Mm-hmm. And I don't really use at all in the work when I'm thinking about science itself. Well, I guess I use it in a way just to help me understand what's going on in particular sciences, but mm-hmm. if Something like the knowledge machine is more like a work of sociology or sociological epistemology or something like that. Right, right. Well, it's interesting to me that you kind of can do both. So what would you say about this idea that a large chunk of human knowledge is now fully democratized and not exclusive to the university? And what's exclusive to the university is extremely esoteric. What do we do with that now? Is there some room for this like neo-academic principle? Or what are your thoughts when I said that to you? I'm just kind of wondering if you might spitball on that. So here are, here are two, two ways forward. I mean, I share, your, I share your sense that there's a danger in, the, in modern life that there is not enough of this kind of synthesizing or syncretic thinking, or at least it's very, and even, even if there are 
enough people doing it, it's very hard for them to uh, find places where they can actually present their ideas where anyone will pay attention to them. Plus, maybe that's true for pretty much any idea these days. And so here are two, two different ways of thinking about, about what you might do about, about it. One is to think, well, at least as far as the way the university is organized, basically the way we have things right now actually works pretty well. Of course, we don't have a department of synthesis or anything like that, but we do give people these, these positions. And I'm thinking of, you know, proper tenured professorial positions where they have an enormous amount of freedom in what they do with their time. Um, and it's possible, for example, to be like me, a philosopher and think, be thinking about complex systems earlier in my career and be thinking about science, how science works later in my career. But equally, you can be a scientist who really makes their name by doing a certain kind of science, but then later in life turns to the, the bigger questions while still, you know, maybe benevolently presiding over a lab, but no longer being, being involved in running it for 80 hours a week. That's so, so maybe then the university system is actually pretty amenable thanks to its, at least in its current version where, where there's a lot of freedom, the other kind of academic freedom in how you actually spend your time. Maybe it's pretty amenable to the, the, the sort of synthesizing thinking where we're talking about. So that is just, that does, that doesn't by itself solve the problem, but it creates a structure within which the problem can be solved. Or you might think, and I think this is probably more your, your line of thought. We need a different kind of institutional structure to kind of, as it were, make the synthesis happen in a more active way, not just rely on individuals to do it because it's just so incredibly interesting for, for getting it done. Well, and I think that there's a, I mean, there's such an unharnessed collective intelligence circulating that, I mean, you know, I was thinking about when I was talking with Eric, it occurred to me. A theory of consciousness is, you know, if we were to come up with a theory of consciousness based on attention, you two, I mean, you know, any of these social media platforms, you can, you could extract almost people's identical tensional patterns. And so there's kind of a collective intelligence in that data itself. But then, you know, what are we doing to get that to people and to what extent do they need it? And I'm so surprised at how many people are so curious and want to learn things, but they don't want to do, like, I was like, should I go back and do another PhD? And I'm, my husband and I are both like, why would you do that? Why would you, no, why would you, and of course I would never, it's so silly. Like I almost don't even, I wonder why I even did the first one, but like, it's because you want to be taken seriously, right? It's because, you know, I think to myself, okay, if I wanted to study something, like, for example, the YouTube theory of consciousness or whatever, not only do I not have access to the data, but let's say I could find a data set that I could work with. It's not like it was in 1905 when Einstein submitted his thesis to the Journal of Physics and, and they were like, sounds good. I like it. Check, check, check. You want a professorship? It's like I, if I wanted to work in philosophy now, just as a person who has a podcast, or just like I have a friend, I have several friends who are what I would call like neo-academics. They're, they work in a warehouse and then they spend their time writing amazing works. You know, I think people don't realize that these people exist. I think the academics specifically don't realize that these people exist. What, what do we do with that overproduced elite? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, in a way that that is the real problem is not creating a situation where people will, will embark on these kinds of projects. It's 
it's creating somehow sorting out ways that they can people with really interesting ideas can actually communicate them in ways that other people who could benefit will will hear them right so right now it's hard to know where to get started there's so many people talking out there who all look like maybe they have something interesting to say <laughs> yeah you know even within academia it's really difficult these days to process the number of papers that are being written even within a fairly narrow specialization and that might be that might be the real problem is not producing the knowledge or the ideas but getting them from the where that from where they're produced to where they might actually be usefully put to work. So you think it's not that we're not capturing enough at the top of the funnel, it's that there's some bottleneck more so. Like there may be even more ideas than can even fit in the funnel, but even within the funnel itself of like, you know, interesting intellectual pursuits, where do we pick them out and what do we do with them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this isn't to say that lots of people, that it's probably the case that a lot of what's going on in the universities is boring and narrow and useless, but still there's enough interesting stuff going on that, and as you say, outside of the universities as well, there's no shortage of ideas. It's more the bottleneck in the funnel, the bottleneck in communication. Okay. So I'm in the right place, I guess. Mm. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm working in the right, the right thing anyways, because I, part of me feels like I'm doing this podcast. What for? Mm -hmm. You know, there's a million podcasts. Yeah. But I think in people like me putting these pieces out there and communicating with people like you, it amplifies a certain story yeah. and creates interest. And I don't know exactly where that goes or what happens with that, but I don't think that's my job to worry about it. So maybe, maybe what I'm, ga I'm gathering from this conversation is like, this is good enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose. In the end, somebody has to worry about where it's ultimately going. Sure. Uh, or at least it would be a problem if nobody was listening to these podcasts. Right. But it might equally be a problem if people are listening to all of them and they don't right. really know which to devote their their intellectual energy to kind of really following up. Well, I think that is a problem. Uh, hopefully we'll run out of time before you ask me to actually solve it because <laughs> I don't think I'll <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I, I'm trying to think if I have any more extremely difficult questions for you. I, I have to have at least one. Now that you said that, I'm mm. totally going to... I know okay. the one. It's relevant. It's relevant. Mm -hmm. So you know how Kuhn says, mm -hmm. somewhere in the structure of scientific revolutions, he says that the people participating in the paradigm need to be working scientists pretty much exclusively. Kind of maybe taking this like, Dawkins like approach that you know maybe excluding his own work from from that paradigm what do you think do you do you agree with this or what what is the role because I think there is a role you called it the audience I think at some point in your book for the audience the scientific audience or the people who are paying attention to science or what's going on in the world what's the difference between yours and Kuhn's perspective and can you speak to that a little bit well, certainly, I think I see a, I think Kuhn had a real insight there, seeing the, the importance of narrowness in science. What the expert does is they, is they've kind of internalized the whole framework within which they're working, what Kuhn called the paradigm, famously. And it's really important to their ability to do science with a certain kind of intensity, with a certain kind of motivation. 
that almost all the options that are logically available to them are closed off because there's a kind of prescribed way of doing things. And they're just told, don't even think about these other possibilities. Just do it this one way. It's like this one long corridor and you just need to run down it as fast as possible. So you may not explore a lot of territory, but you are going to break the speed record if that's your job. And it's kind of what's turned out to be really important to science is having individual scientists just, you know, often actually the metaphor is not as more kind of depth, you know, yes. digging down into turning up what I call these little facts, these, these microscopic discrepancies that show us and ultimately that we need a whole new theory of gravitation, that sort of thing. That seems right to me. I, and I, I don't think, however, that, that on the whole scientists do are, are that constrained. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which they are constrained, but it's, but Kuhn to some extent, and certainly, and this message, this aspect of Kuhn really got amplified by people reading Kuhn, em emphasized the sort of the intellectual or the conceptual closing off. At his most extreme, he said, you can't even conceive of anything other than your framework being the right framework, <laughs> and which is a really cool idea, but I think it's not actually correct about working scientists. <laughs> it would be truer to say that they don't really have to <laughs> worry about these things because their job is to get some data published in some journals, and they know that that's their job. And so they can maybe walk through all these other doors, but there's only one door with a big kind of, not, it's not so much a dollar sign, but a kind of a success sign, a fame sign. And that's the one they head towards. So in the same way, there's a kind of a narrow corridor. The motivation, motivational structure works not quite the way Kuhn thinks it works by closing off intellectual possibilities, but more like creating just one way to be a really good scientist by doing this empirical testing. And that has the same result same consequence of turning ordinary human beings, ordinary multifaceted human beings, at least when they're in the lab, wherever, into, into these monomaniacs who just care about one thing, this one experiment, which, you know, may or may not ultimately turn out to succeed, or even if it succeeds to be very important at all, but we're that's the, that's their one way that they can make a difference if they make any difference. And so that's what they do. And with all the kind of the fervor that, that, that gives science the, the drive and the power that it has. Yeah. So do you think, um, there's any role for like Foy Robbins participant versus observer? Like the participant is the scientist. What about all of us? We're observers. What is our role? Oh, yes. Right. You did ask me about that. Well, our role is completely different and our motivational structure is completely different. You know, in some sense where, you know, occasionally I could actually compare scientists to elite athletes. So they are, they kind of spend their whole lives, athletes or scientists learning how to do this one thing incredibly well. And then we kind of enjoy the fruits of their, a kind of achievement, a kind of single-mindedness that, that creates that level of performance or that kind of um, telling us of the, the data and science. We're mostly just kind of benefiting from their prowess. You know, that most of the time it's just kind of, oh, great, there's this new gadget. <laughs> but there's another role, of course, 
that we play as kind of citizens in a some kind of political structure, you know, we, how we are anyway living in a democracy and we have to actually make decisions. <laughs> and then, so we have to kind of not, we're not just sitting back, we have to think about the science a little bit and what it's telling us about. And of course that takes us back into all the, all the things we've been talking about so far yep. today. That's interesting. I mean, um, no, and I think that's a good way to conclude because, you know, people who listen to this podcast are mostly not scientists. They're mostly bizarre creatives, like not, mm -hmm. not bizarre in a bad way, in the best way possible mm -hmm. writers. And, and I, and I often feel like, I wonder if they, you know, their interest in science, their interest in these pursuits, they feel, I know they feel like intellectually alone and, and like they don't have a place to, to, to be with all of this. And so like, you know, we're kind of all in the arena with these people, but I think we're missing some of that like camaraderie and the participation of it. Um, so that's an interesting yeah, metaphor, not, you know. I guess um, not and, a very uh, hopeful one from the point of view of addressing this right. well, but, of alienation from the process of doing science. <laughs> right. But I see a potential to kind of build on that and to think about it because if you've ever been in the stands at an event, it's yeah. a lot of fun. I mean, it's a, there's a there's a really interesting and fun collective perspective and shared mm -hmm. joy and shared demise. And um, so, in one hand, I I saw it at first like, oh shit, we get not mm. we get to we get nothing, we get to watch, you know. But then I thought also like that participation in it is part of the whole experience, and there's got to be something in there. So I thank you for that metaphor. I appreciate it, and I appreciate you coming on this podcast and um i'm so that excited to have you talk. so this is wonderful i really enjoyed it <laughs> thanks for listening and here is the big nerve challenge question for this episode what could be some unexplored misconceptions about science that need to be rectified in order to enhance its value